0: Readings from Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Read with me. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Welcome. Doug is on vacation this week, and um, I'm glad you're all here tonight. I, My name is Paige. This might be a little low. I might stand up. Um, I'm a member here at All Souls for those who are visiting. I don't know how to work this. Does anybody have... A little, there we go. Oh, thanks. That's good. Okay, thanks. Um, for those who are visiting... Um, I'm a member here at All Souls and uh, I am the wife to Chip and I have five children (laughs) and it's an honor to speak tonight. It's an honor to be a part of this community Um, and uh, this summer Doug has given us a little challenge. He's asked us to do a little thought experiment to imagine that you and I are part of an urban monastery. Now that may seem a little confusing so we've fleshed it out a little bit with this idea, or defined it this way, that an urban monastery, do we have that definition, seeks the peace of the city by offering a school for the Lord's service and extending hospitality to guests. So it's this idea of living in the the city of Knoxville and extending our generosity to others, to our neighbor, and loving them well. What does this really look like? And I've really enjoyed each week how Doug has started, begun the sermon, by giving us a little glimpse into history, how throughout history, God has used monastic communities to bless cities. And so this week, I'm going to tell you about one. Her name was Hilda. She was born in the year 614 in the uh, Dark Ages of England. It almost starts like a Disney princess movie, (laughs) During her childhood, there was a lot of political unrest and her royal family that she was born into is actually exiled and while they're exiled, her father is poisoned and killed. It gets better. She's brought back as an orphan and she's um, living in the royal household as an orphan and, but she has all the privileges of a princess. A missionary comes along And spreads the good news, shares the gospel with the royal family, and they all convert, including Hilda at the age of 13. And we don't know much about Hilda, again, until she's in her 30s. We find out that she's decided to follow her older sister to become a nun in France. And as her foot is on the boat to go to France, she gets a letter from Bishop Aidan of Ireland. And he says, please change your mind. Come back up northeast. I really need your help and your resources to establish a monastic community in the Northeast. And so she does. She changes her mind. She goes up Northeast, and under the influence and guidance of Aidan, she establishes a double monastery for both men and women. And it's so successful and thrives under her leadership that she's eventually promoted to abbess. She's moved to Whitby, And she begins again to establish another monastic community. But this time, this one really thrives under her guidance and leadership. Um, She uh, emphasizes education at this one. She sets up this large monastic library to train her monks to become priests. And eventually, several of those go on to be bishops. But she doesn't only emphasize education for clergy. She emphasizes it for non-clergy alike. Um, she encourages a shepherd at the monastery to write religious poetry and to pursue his gifting, and he becomes the first English poet. His name was Cademan. Her drive for education extends, and she uh, she's known for um, so her influence is spread throughout England, and she's consulted by many kings for her spiritual direction. The monastery at Whitby becomes acknowledged as the religious and cultural center of northeast England. So as you see, uh, Christians embracing the monastic life illuminate the dark ages in England and preserve the Christian faith. Once again, here's the idea of Christians living in community and serving their city for the glory of God And that's what we're exploring this summer is what does it look like for us, you and I, to extend hospitality in our community, in Knoxville? How do we enter into that and uh, generously give of our resources and love our neighbors? To give a little context to this parable tonight, Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples how to pray. And he stops abruptly and he dives into the story of hospitality one that I think you and I can learn from. But before we begin, I think a little information on how we approach a parable might be, a, might be helpful to us. A parable is a story that speaks in pictures and through real human experiences. Parables use what is familiar to us. They use uh, common language and respect traditions. But then, suddenly, a parable takes what we f- took for granted as the right, the good, or the moral way, and makes us see that maybe that's not God's way. Parables don't nail things down neatly. In fact, they blow things up, and as you see the rubble fly through the sky, you start to catch glimpses of God's radical truth. They, they teach us that maybe we don't know everything, that... Maybe we should let go of our certainty, step into mystery and discovery in conversation. And I hope that this is what this parable does for us tonight. This particular parable is about a man who is caught in a very embarrassing situation and what he does to get out of it. Jesus begins by asking his disciples, which of you, which is better translated as, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine this scenario? And the obvious answer from his disciples is, of course not. No, this is the worst case scenario scenario in the world of hospitality. The disciples knew this because hospitality in Jesus' day required that any guest arriving at one's home be offered something to eat. It was a sacred obligation tied to one's honor. You see, there weren't any supermarkets, no 24-hour convenience stores, no bakeries. Instead, the bread that was offered to the guests had to be baked daily. It was considerable labor. It would have been prepared late in the day so that it could rise overnight and baked the next morning to be consumed throughout the day. So it's no wonder in this parable that there really isn't anything left at the end of the day. As you can see, opportunity for hospitality has presented itself at the most inopportune time and caught empty-handed with a guest at the door was really inconvenient and very embarrassing. The traveling friend doesn't phone the day before and give notice. He doesn't show up exactly at 6 p.m. for dinner. No, the traveling friend arrives at midnight unannounced. You see, hospitality is often inconvenient, and comes at the most inopportune time. It will cause la- la- loss of sleep. It will interrupt our precious schedules. And it will insist that we rearrange our priorities. To give you a little glimpse into my week, this past Monday, I got a call that my mom was in the hospital and very sick. Um, I quickly went to be with her, and after several days of a battery of tests. The doctors finally thought they knew what was going on. And so by Thursday, she was home, and I thought she was okay. I called her Friday morning, and I could tell over the phone that she was delirious and very weak, and so I went to be with her right away. Long story short, we got her in an ambulance, took her to the hospital Friday night, and found out she was actually having a heart attack. We did not realize that. Friday night, she had emergency heart surgery, And uh, God spared her life. We are very grateful. It's been a week of unexpected twists and turns caring for my mom. It's been a week of rearranging schedules and no sleep. I've sat by my mom's bed for hours this week, and I've had friends just give up their entire days, drive from other states, and sleep by my mom all night. Showing hospitality is often an abrupt inter- interruption to our routine. Loving our neighbor rarely is on our timetable. And if we are waiting for it to be convenient and neatly scheduled, we will most likely miss the opportunity. It may be a call for you to go to the hospital, but it may be just a call in the middle of the night for a friend just needing a listening ear. It may mean rearranging your whole free weekend to help that neighbor move. It may be giving up your precious free moments to visit an elderly shut-in. It may be the unexpected request to take in a foster child. Jesus tells us that this man is caught off guard without any bread to give to his friend And I think that if he had known his friend was coming, he would have prepared, he would have set some bread aside. The truth is, it is the most natural thing in the world to neglect hospitality because it's not only inconvenient, it shows us where we are without bread. The outsider shows us, shines a bright light on our empty table and speaks to the problem within us, showing where we are inadequate. What is bread today? What is bread for you? Sometimes it's hard to admit we don't have the bread to offer others. And I think it's because our culture praises the self-sufficient, the independent individual who makes his or her own bread, We praise the bootstrapper, right? But God's picture of providing bread is vastly different in this parable. There's this beautiful picture of God providing bread, and it's rooted in the Old Testament. It begins in Exodus 16.35. It says, The people of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So the picture of manna rooted in the Old Testament is this miraculous daily nourishment supplied by God to the Israelites when they left Egypt. Now, if you remember, Egypt was the place of slavery, right? But it was the place of perceived abundance. The Israelites once they're free, are groaning and complaining because they want to go back. They want to go back to that place where they have certainty of food instead of having to trust in God to give daily manna. The act of them going out every day and picking up this weird substance off the ground was this trust in God to provide the very thing they would need to survive that day. They couldn't store it. They couldn't collect too much. If they tried to hoard it, the next day it would be rotted and full of maggots. It was manna for the moment that had to be renewed daily. But it wasn't a one-size-fits-all manna. If you think about the nutritional needs of any group or community, even in this room tonight, it's vastly uh, different and, and uh, varied, widely varied. God's supernatural manna met the daily nutritional requirements for men, women, old and young, and everybody in between. We are even told at different points in the Old Testament that it had different tastes. like It could be sweet like honey or savory like coriander and oil. In fact, the understanding of manna in the Old Testament as God's daily care for his children led ancient rabbis to compare it to a mother's milk that adapts, tastes, and changes nutritional needs for her developing baby. Manna is a picture of God's all-knowing, sufficient care for our need. So where do you need bread tonight? How we approach hospitality so often depends on our perception if we have bread to give. And our natural inclination is if we don't have anything to give, we withdraw from hospitality. I want to make a note here that sometimes our lack of bread is simply because we aren't called to give it, right? Doug established earlier in the summer of the series that. Not every need is a call, and it takes prayerful discernment to know. We must ask ourselves, is this mine to do? Is this mine to give? And clearly in this parable, Jesus is telling us an example of when we are called to love and give generously. Maybe you've thought to yourself this week, You know, I really admire that cause. I love what they're doing, but I just don't think I have the money to give to it right now. I don't know about you, but when I see a phone number coming up on my phone, I know exactly what it's going to cost to answer that, how much energy it's going to take to answer that. I'm like, nope, I don't have the energy right now. Maybe you're asking, when will I have time to give to my aging parents? When or do I have what it takes to get this job done? To finish strong. These questions of, am I enough? Do I have enough? Always seem to be with us in some form or fashion. When the answer is no, when it's a resounding no, we feel weak. Empty tables make us feel weak. Sometimes we know exactly where we need bread. We can name it. It's time, money, energy. But sometimes... Sometimes it's something deeper, something that might need to be excavated or uncovered, named even. Naming where we need bread is so important. It takes a little detective work to discover on a deeper level where we need God's supply of bread in our lives. How do you become a detective in your life? Well, what does a detective do a detective notices that small anomaly at the crime scene and solves the crime. Case closed. So if we could all be like Sherlock Holmes in our own lives and do a little detective work, you may find that the truth lies in the symptom in the anomaly of your life. That little thing that doesn't make sense, that isn't working, that you don't pay attention to until you pay attention to it. It's that tension in your jaw or that routine outburst of anger, that critical voice in your head, that overscheduled calendar, emotional ambivalence. Pause. Reflect. Pay attention. Where do you feel exhaustion? Shame? Anger? Anger? even boredom, invite God into that place. Welcome the Spirit of God to illuminate the place you feel the most scarcity because the symptom is often telling you the truth about your empty table. Once we've acknowledged our empty table and honestly named where we need God's provision, we must be vulnerable enough to seek it. Jesus is telling a story about a man caught in an inconvenient and an embarrassing situation. And what does the man do? He runs to his friend's house to find bread. Verse 6 and 7 says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to give him. To share... Friendship is to also share honor and responsibility. So there's this assumption as Jesus is telling the story that the friend would assist based on the context of hospitality and the conventions of friendship. It would be doubly shameful for a friend to refuse another friend the very resources to extend hospitality. So we're assuming that the friend's going to respond, right? but there's one small problem it's in the middle of the night and his kids are asleep to give to paint a picture of like what's happening here these peasant homes in first century palestine were more likely to be like mud huts and they were closely packed together often just sharing adjacent walls the family would make their beds in the center of the room and everybody would kind of sleep together along with the animals just to keep warm and so, because of the close proximity, any disturbances of sleep would spill over into the next house. This wasn't a disturbance of one home. It was possibly the disturbance of an entire village. And I love, I love that Jesus includes in his story the idea of sleeping children, we all know that there is this unspoken universal law that says you never wake a sleeping child. There's not, amen, yeah, there's not a parent in this room that hasn't cringed at the sound of the UPS man ringing the doorbell at nighttime. And so the fact that Jesus includes sleeping children in the story just takes it to a whole new level of how disturbing this midnight request is going to be. The inconvenience of the traveling friend becomes the inconvenience to the village. The friend is at first refused, but because of his persistence, He gets the bread he needs. The Greek word for persistence is better translated as shameless audacity. In our words, he is so annoying. He's interrupting his friend's privacy, the sleep of an entire family, and possibly disrupts the peace of a village for the sake of caring for the needs of his guest. Yes, this friend is a picture of God who generously gives individual bread, but I also think it's a picture of the means by which God gives us bread. Hospitality works within community. This expresses the need of not just individuals, but the hope of a community whose ministry of hospitality is to be carried out in utter dependence On God's provision. When you and I become vulnerable to each other, when we show each other our weaknesses and express our needs, we give our brothers and sisters an opportunity to serve us and to serve alongside us. This isn't just a story about our dependence on God, it's about the interdependence within the body of Christ as we serve our neighbor, the traveler, the outsider. Back to my week at the hospital with mom. And I'm sure anyone who's had a loved one in the hospital has experienced this. Your main focus is on your loved one who is sick. But your main job is to coordinate all the care that's coming at you, all the love, all the concern, all the... Do you need food? Do you need somebody to come sit and pray? I mean, there's so much wonderful love that I have received this week. um, And it gives me hope. But there were so many times in in my mind or in my thoughts, I thought, wow, I'm okay, we're fine, it's okay, don't worry about us, we'll get through. You know that, I don't need your help. That's wrong. Maybe our response and our weakness should just be a simple yes, and thank you. That's so hard for us, right? Just yes, and thank you. I welcome and appreciate any bread you are offering to my empty table right now. Verse 9, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Here's the good news, friends. It's in verse 9. Those two words, so I, places you and I directly in this parable. The very one who calls himself the bread of life promises to rise and act on our behalf, if we shamelessly and persistently bring our needs to him this is not a formula for greed it's our relationship with him and rightly identifying that we are in fact desperate and in need of his abundant timely and perfect provision as i sat with the scripture i couldn't help but notice the repetition of threes throughout the scripture I'll point them out briefly. There is three human needs in the prayer. Bread, forgiveness, escape from trials. Three friends, the traveler, the would-be host, and the neighbor. Three loaves of bread, three models of petition, ask, search, knock, and three responses, receive, find, open door. I think Luke wove this identity of unity intentionally in this scripture to point out that our unity with God places us in this perfect protection and provision of the triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You and I go to a triune God who knows our needs better than we know our own and whose heart toward us is a heart of generous love. When our table is empty and we have no bread to give, we are liberated to ask, search, knock with a promise that God gives far beyond what we might expect. Will you pray with me?